As we begin this morning, uh, I'd like to actually have a word of prayer, and uh, you join me, please. Let's ask for God's help as we open the New Testament together and look at some things that God has given us. Let's pray. Father, how thankful we are this morning that you are with us. We're thankful that you are the God who has done all that is necessary for us to be rescued from our sins and delivered and made whole. And as we open your word this morning, it's with hope and expectation uh, that we will hear your voice. We ask that you would protect us from our own opinions, those wrong ideas and notions about who you are, uh, what you might be like, and help us to receive your word as it is the revelation of the Almighty God intended to, to guide us into truth. Holy Spirit, would you please attend the ministry of your word this morning, and we ask that only what you desire would remain in our hearts, that you would protect us and guide us and bless us for your namesake, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, not so long ago, people in Hawaii who were diagnosed with leprosy were actually uh, exiled to an isolated peninsula attached to one of the tiniest and least populated islands. Um, and details on the history of this colony, known as Kalaupapa, I, I should, ask, should have asked Kevin to pronounce this. Uh, I think it's Kalaupapa. Uh, that's the leprosy colony uh, for patients uh, that could not remain in their normal communities and, and with their families. It's a leper colony of, of some historical significance, and records suggest that at least 8,000 individuals were forcibly removed from their families and re- relocated to this colony over a century, starting in the 1860s. Almost all of them were native to Hawaii. You know, 16 of those patients, ages 73 to 92, were still alive at the time of this article. This article was written in, in 2015, and I know it... I tried to look for some updated statistics and couldn't find anything that could be verified. But those uh, few patients who remained were living at that time voluntarily as full-time residents, even though the quarantine had been lifted in 1969. More than two decades after drugs were developed to treat leprosy, which today we would more commonly, at least in the medical world, refer to it as Hansen's disease. The experience of being exiled for these dear people was traumatic, as you can imagine. We can only try to understand the kind of heartbreak that they had experienced as they were abandoned, some by parents, others by family and friends. Trauma and heartbreak for both the patients themselves and for those that they left behind. As I read through this article, I was struck by something, though, that that a number of patients who had the choice to return to their homes or to their neighborhoods remained exactly where they were. And the author of this article asked two questions. So why didn't every remaining patient embrace the new freedom? Why didn't everyone reconnect with loved ones and revel in the conveniences of civilization? Because that colony being cut off was, was behind the times in many ways. And many of Kala Upapa's patients forged, listen to this term, paradoxical bonds with their isolated world. Many couldn't bear to leave it. It was, as another author writes, the counterintuitive twinning. 
You know what twins are? The counterintuitive twinning of loneliness and community. All that dying and all of that living. I suppose for those of us who've never experienced a disease that tends to isolate you uh, from others relationally or isolate you from others medically would have a really difficult time understanding why these patients would remain as exactly where they were. But that little phrase stuck out, stuck out to me as I read that, the paradoxical bonds. To an ordinary person, it might not make sense, but having, if you had lived through that, it would make perfect sense. And maybe it's the fact that they had become familiar and comfortable with their surroundings. The risks were minimized. You know, leprosy has terrible physical effects from losing fingers and toes to having your, your face swollen and distorted, the scarring that occurs even after medication and treatment. And maybe people said, you know, I'm accepted for who I am right here, and though I'm isolated or cut off from other people that I've known and loved, I'd just rather minimize my losses and remain right here. It's hard to know fully what those people have been thinking, and it's hard for us to understand exactly what a leper experiences. But you know, Jesus encountered several lepers in his life, and one of those encounters is, is included in Mark's gospel. And I would invite you to turn to this passage in the New Testament, the gospel according to Mark chapter 1. Now, if you didn't bring a copy of the Bible, we have some scattered around the room. You'll see them in the book racks underneath, uh, typically every other seat, but sometimes we reconfigure the room and a book rack might be a little further down the road. But just ask somebody to pass you one. We'd love everybody to see it and be able to read it as uh, we are moving through this paragraph in Mark chapter 1. You'll find this passage of Scripture on page 837 if you're using one of the church Bibles there from the book rack in front of you. Verse 40 says, And a leper came to him, that is to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Now, to get you caught up to speed, in chapter 1, uh, Mark has introduced Jesus to us, first through the ministry of John the Baptist, and then he said that Jesus came preaching a, a gospel of the kingdom, calling people to repent of their sins and put their faith in him. Jesus continued that ministry in local synagogues like the one at Capernaum and taught with an authority that people were not used to. The rabbis taught weekly in those synagogues, but Jesus arrived and taught in a way that they said, we've, we've never heard teaching like this. Not only was his teaching authoritative, but his healing ministry, and specifically the, the ministry of casting out demons from those who were possessed and oppressed, became openly known so that in Capernaum, the story is told that the whole city came to the front door of the house he was staying in one particular night to be healed and delivered. And so you can imagine the kind of news spreading like wildfire. There's a healer, there's a deliverer, there's a teacher. 
and he's different from anything we've ever encountered before. And so obviously the news had spread to this leper. The leper came to him. You know, a leper would have experienced things that were very, very challenging and difficult. There's the physical component of his illness that would have been devastating for him, but there were some other things as well that I think are important for us to consider. Physically, uh, this leper would have experienced deterioration and decay of his body. Can you imagine waking each day wondering, what else about me will be useless by the end of the day? Maybe fingers, maybe toes, maybe facial features. It was a devastating disease physically. But secondly, it was a devastating disease relationally because it left people isolated and rejected, not just for medical reasons. We'll come to an Old Testament passage that actually shows what has to happen when somebody contracts this very contagious disease. But there's the third component, and that is the spiritual devastation humiliation, and separation. We don't know how long this leper had dealt with this disease. No idea how many family members or friends that he had left behind. And lepers typically moved out of city limits, outside the walls, and they had their own colonies or neighborhoods where they could live and try to conduct business and and make some sort of living. But, oh, how terrible. One of the Old Testament passages that tells us uh, a little bit about what a leper would experience is from Leviticus. And if you go back to chapter 13 and read verses 45 and 46, you see this instruction, and this came from the Lord. And in one sense, he's trying to protect the people from the contagious nature of this disease, but there's also a, a spiritual lesson that is woven into this text as well. And so the Lord instructed Moses to teach the people that the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Can you imagine? And you know, in the Old Testament, there is no known cure There's no prescription that's given in these same verses to say if you take this medication or you follow this procedure, then there's good reason to hope that you will be cured. No, in many ways, this was viewed as a death sentence. One commentator writes, the disease robbed them of their health and the sentence imposed on them as a consequence robbed them of their name, occupation, habits, family and fellowship and worshiping community. To ensure against contact with society, lepers were required to make their appearance as repugnant as possible. That's why they would wear torn clothes and not tend their hair. Lepers were required to make their appearance as repugnant as possible. And the Jewish historian Josephus speaks of the banishment of lepers as in no way differing from a corpse. Walking dead. That's what a leper was. Another author writes, on the chance encounter with a leper, the rabbis of that day had taught that if an unclean man, that is one afflicted with leprosy, stood under a tree and a clean man, a ceremonially, spiritually clean man passed by, 
that clean man would actually be unclean just by passing by. And because there was such religious stigma with leprosy, the rabbis were continually putting the blame for this dread disease on the very ones who suffered from the disease. Some rabbis taught that that no death, there is no death without sin and no pain without transgression. They loved to trace the disease back to a moral cause in the person. So you, you begin to feel some of the weight that was on this leper. Not only is he dealing with this disease that there's no known cure for, not only is he dealing with the reality that he's cut off from his family and friends, the normal life that he would have enjoyed up until the time he contracted this disease, but there's this heavy weight of spiritual stigma placed over him as if somehow he did this and this is God's punishment for his sins. And I think how many of... The world's religions of our own day and generation do essentially the same thing. Teaching and promoting the ideas that the only way to be cleansed from your spiritual defilement is to obey God perfectly. Keep His commandments and you will be washed. Or other religions that would say, there's a cause for everything that happens to you in your own karma. And if a bad thing is occurring, it's probably because you did something bad. Maybe in this life or maybe a previous life. How about that? How frustrating to think that a life I, I don't even remember about, I must have done something evil in, and that, that's why this life is so terrible. How do you ever escape that weight? How do you ever free yourself from that kind of condemnation? I wonder if you've ever lived under that kind of pressure. The pressure ultimately to heal yourself. The pressure to work out some kind of spiritual cleansing. I mean, the, the, the leper not only wants to be physically cured, but he's got to figure out some way to spiritually cure himself. If you've ever lived with that kind of spiritual pressure, you know it's crushing. The weight is unbearable. And it actually drives you to a place of hopelessness. I've talked to some of you enough to know that in your spiritual journey, some of you walked away from all religion whatsoever because you just said, I cannot do it. And I'm about to lose my mind. We know in our hearts that we can never remove the stains of our sin and bring about our own spiritual healing. Try though we may. And some of you have made a gallant effort. It begins to explain why lepers in Kala Upapa would be content to live with the paradoxes of their disease, right? You just, you just minimize your losses, do the best you can, and, and hope that life doesn't get worse than it already is. But you know, this leper, despite the cultural context and even despite the Old Testament instructions that would say to him, stay away from clean people, there's something in him that is so desperate, such discontentment that he actually comes to Jesus and the text says, imploring him and kneeling. And that's what brings us to Christ and an all-important question. You see, this this leper comes to Jesus, not questioning his power, but questioning his willingness. Now, there's good reason for that. 
In the Old Testament, there are only two stories of lepers being healed. The first is of Moses' sister Miriam. In the time of the Exodus, when God led the children of Israel out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses, there came a point where a lot of Israel was discontent. They were grumbling and complaining and rebellious. And even Moses' siblings, Miriam and Aaron, stepped forward and basically accused him of arrogantly assuming this leadership, which, I mean, how painful would that be? You kind of expect it from people you don't know well to question your motives, but your own siblings, really? And what Moses had sacrificed at that point and what he had endured was just beyond what any human being should really have to endure. Well, God actually steps in and disciplines Miriam and Aaron, and for Miriam, he afflicts her with leprosy. That would tend to stop any kind of grumbling against your brother, wouldn't it? You know what's amazing about that story? It's Moses who steps forward and, and pleads with God and says, heal my sister. Now that's a humble brother. Some of you grew up with brothers and sisters and sibling rivalry, and you know, when you, when you watch your sibling kind of get their comeuppance, you, you kind of sit back and like, yeah, it's about time. <laughs> Finally, dad saw you for the evil person you are. Not Moses. He knows leprosy from God, in this case, as a disciplinary measure against his sister, will destroy her. And he shows great humility and pleads with God. And God hears those prayers of Moses and heals his sister. So that's story number one. It wasn't Moses that healed her, it was God. Story number two is actually very interesting. There's a, a Syrian general named Naaman. He's afflicted with leprosy. He has a little servant girl who used to live in Israel and know of a, a, a mighty man of God, a prophet named Elisha. And she says to Naaman, you know, there's a man in Israel that can heal you. So Naaman's king, the king of Assyria, actually writes out this uh, appeal to the king of Israel and says, I'm sending my general down there. We hear he can be healed. Heal him. Well, the king of Israel panics because he knows he doesn't have the power to heal this man. He's not sure of all that's going on here. He actually thinks that the king of Syria is provoking war, asking him to do something he knows he has no capacity for. And if you go back to 2 Kings and you read the story fully, the king of Israel actually says, am I God to kill and make alive? See, he recognizes that leprosy is so far beyond his capacity to heal that it has to be an act of God. Well, the story as it unfolds, Naaman eventually is healed by God as a result of Elisha's instruction uh, to, to go wash himself in the River Jordan, and uh, it's quite a remarkable uh, story of God's mercy and kindness, but those are the only two accounts in the Old Testament of people being healed by leprosy, and it's always God who does it. And in Jesus' day, the rabbis were actually affirming that it was as difficult to heal a leper as to raise the dead. So that'll show you, again, kind of the cultural context that, that is unfolding here. Now, the question of the leper, as we encounter it in the Scripture, is simply, if you will, you can make me clean. Not if you are able. The leper doesn't seem to be questioning that power of Jesus because he's already healed all kinds of people. He's already delivered all kinds of other people from demonic powers and, and forces. But he wants to know, is Jesus willing to heal me. 
I think we all wonder about God's willingness to do things for us, don't we? We may even affirm in our, our minds that Jesus Christ has the power to forgive our sins, to cleanse away the guilt and filth of our, stain, of our sins, stained as we are. But is he willing? Is he willing? And our worst fear is that we might have actually done something so bad that God himself would say, I'm not willing. And like the leper, we come to him wondering, are you willing? Would you do that for me? I wonder what lies in your past that may be so dark, so painful, so devastating, even humiliating for you to to think on that. You would say, I don't think God would forgive me for that sin. I know he could, but it just seems so ugly. I don't know why he would. Why would he cleanse me from that sin? You know, for your encouragement, this story is given us to answer your question. So look at the text with me. We're going to see that Jesus demonstrates his willingness in two particular ways. And the first is that he is actually full of holy compassion. Holy compassion. Look at verse 40. If you will, you can make me clean. And now, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him. Moved with pity. Now, when we think of, of being moved with pity, we typically think of those who are, are the, the sweet-spirited, sympathizing ones, right? My mother, who went to be with the Lord 20 years ago, was of such a tender heart. And uh, Seth and Haley never even met her. They were born after she went to be with the Lord. And so we've told them stories about her. And even our daughter Kate was 10 months old when she passed away. Our oldest was about three. Luke has a few memories of her. But even now, Kristen and I will talk about the memory of her her pity, particularly for her grandkids. I knew some of that growing up, but it's amazing. Like, you see so much more of that with the grandchildren, don't you? <laughs> and she had a little phrase that if, if one of the little ones, whether it be our kids or my sister's kids, would you know, fall down, skin their knee, she would say, oh, poor little thing. And sometimes we would tease her a little bit and say, you know, they're people, they're not things. <laughs> but she was such... Uh, a compassionate person that when I hear the word pity, my, my mind typically goes toward my mother. But I want to tell you that kind of pity and even that image I just painted for you through my dear mother is actually not strong enough for what is really taking place here because a word that Mark uses to describe the compassion of Jesus can also be translated and is translated in other places in the New Testament with anger. It is compassion, but there's something that burns inside of this compassion. What would Jesus actually be angry about? Well, it's clear from the way he responds. He's not angry that the leper has come to him. It's not the anger of, you've inconvenienced me at this moment. It's not the anger of frustration like, you know, when will these people leave me alone? It's actually anger as he looks upon the deterioration and decay of this man, both physically and spiritually. This is the creator of the universe. 
This is the one who, when the worlds were first being formed, spoke them into existence and said, they are, it's all good. But sin brought such devastation and destruction into the world that we look around us and say, it's not all good, is it? And our disease and the fact that we face death daily and the deterioration and decay of our lives, our homes, our businesses, our families, it, it does evoke something in us that, that's much stronger than, oh, you poor thing. It stirs a kind of holy anger within us saying, it should not be this way. And that's exactly how Jesus is responding. It's interesting to me too that as God, he knows he's about to heal this man, but the emotion is not something he just sets aside as if, well, you know what, I'm gonna heal him, it's no big deal. Oh, there's something within Jesus that rages over the effects of sin. It's holy compassion. It's a kind of anger that most of us have never really encountered. We may have felt little pieces of it within ourselves, but woven through this tender and personal compassion are the strands of a righteous and holy anger against sin and all of its woe. How remarkable that Jesus is actually provoked in his spirit by what he sees before him. The separation from family and friends that this leper experiences incites the anger and compassion of King Jesus. This man was not created to be banished outside of his community. The exclusion of this man from the Sabbath worship and the temple festivals, those annual feast days which were so important for a Jewish man in particular, those were painful reminders of how deeply impacted his life was, not just by disease but by sin itself. And the king stands before this desperate man, welling up within him, and welling up within him is a holy compassion and righteous indignation that moves him to act. And you know, each time our hearts are moved with compassion, pity, and sometimes anger over the devastating effects of disease, we, we are a small reflection of the king. So he's full of holy compassion, but notice this next line. This is beautiful. He, Jesus, stretched out his hand and touched him. The touch of Jesus as one author writes, was significant from two points of view. From the perspective of the, of the leper, it was an unheard of act of compassion. Don't you wonder how long had it been since any human being had touched him? Did he have a wife? Did he have children? Where were his parents? What about his close friends? When was the last time anybody placed a hand of tenderness and sympathy upon his decaying hand? When was the last time anybody embraced him with a warm hug and whispered those words of tender family affection, I love you? How long had it been since another human being had touched him? This author goes on to write, it must have moved him deeply and strengthened him in his conviction that he had not asked for help in vain. Here's a second point of view from the perspective of Jesus' relationship to the religious system that he had stepped into. It indicated that he did not hesitate to act in violation of its regulations when the situation demanded. Remember the teaching of the rabbis? One little piece I mentioned a moment ago. Leper guy standing under the tree, you're walking down the road, you better steer clear of him because if you pass too closely, you will be ceremonially defiled. And Jesus says... 
in the spirit of Scrooge, bah humbug. Not only is Jesus comfortable passing nearby, he closes the distance totally and he reaches out his hand and touches this man. Is he willing? Is Jesus willing to draw near to you in your sin and the defilement and corruption and guilt that you wrestle with and would love to shake? Is he willing to reach to you? Well, this is our answer. Well, there's a second aspect of this answer. Is he willing? And and this is marvelous. We've known this. We've already seen this in our study through chapter one, but look at it again. He's full of healing power. He touches him and says to him, I will be clean. The touch of Christ upon this decaying, dying man would have been adequate to communicate his heart, but he speaks words that are so compassionate and tender. I am willing. That's what he's saying. He's not reluctant. He's not hesitant. He's not repulsed by the physical decay in front of him and he is not repulsed by the spiritual needs within this man's heart and Mark writes verse 42 immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean and Mark is using word here that has far more spiritual meaning and symbolism than medical the word clean is used all throughout the scriptures to indicate a spiritual cleansing now it is true that physically he was healed in a moment oh I I say this, I think, almost every week. When I get to heaven, I want God to replay this on the big, you know, divine HD screen. Well, here's another one. I mean, wouldn't you want to see this? Some of you have had skin conditions of, of all kinds. Maybe when you're a teen, you really had, you know, acne or psoriasis. Or, but you know how, how frustrating it is. Day after day, you look at that inflammation, that, that tenderness, and you just think, oh, I want to be healed. And here's a man who has the worst kind of disease, watching his body decay. And in a moment, Jesus touches him and speaks and heals him completely. And, and I have no idea how old he was, but even some of us who are getting up in years going, man, the skin really does wrinkle ir- irreparably. And there's no amount of hydrating I can do to deal with that. This man is whole. Whatever healthy color he hoped to see appeared. Whatever inflammation, and in the case of leprosy, you just actually lose feeling. But it's restored. And he's made whole. But beyond that physical healing, he's now clean. That means ceremonially, he can re-engage with family. He can begin to conduct his business in the streets and marketplaces of his local community without fear that he would spiritually contaminate somebody else. He can enter the synagogue on the Sabbath day as an ordinary worshiper and take a seat, not behind a screen as some of them did, not coming in way before everybody else or leaving after everybody else is gone. He can actually make preparations to to travel to Jerusalem for the major feasts that are coming up and, and know that he can walk in the middle of these people no longer crying, unclean, unclean, but can now stand there knowing that the king himself has touched him and spoken this word of healing over him and brought him health and wholeness. This is like being born again. 
a dead man comes to life. And there's nothing remaining in him that disqualifies him from reuniting with his family, rejoining society, or approaching the living God. The painful paradoxes are gone. To my knowledge, nobody here today deals with leprosy or Hansen's disease. But all of us deal with those issues of soul and heart that cause us to dread the presence of God, things that make us religiously or socially unclean, maybe in the eyes of another person or another group, or maybe in the eyes of God himself. And I wonder if for you this morning there is some dread sin hidden in your soul that you know separates you from God and the people that you love. And maybe with that sense of sin, there is a stigma that much like the the clothing, the rags that the leper was expected to attire himself, you, you just feel like you are wrapped in some rag of a stigma that makes you unclean. And you don't walk through life daily in the workplace or in your neighborhood crying, I am unclean, I am unclean, 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 but you sure feel like it. And maybe the cry of your heart is like that of King David who, feeling the disease of his murder and adultery, cried out to God for cleanness of soul. Are you familiar with Psalm 51? The whole psalm is worth your attention, but let me just pull out three verses. This is the cry of King David after Nathan the prophet came to him and confronted him and said, you are a murderer and an adulterer, and Nathan was right. You remember the whole Bathsheba story? He takes another man's wife and then puts the man on the front lines and kills him. This is an ugly moment in David's life. But he wrote these words, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Hyssop was a a branch of a a bush that was used as part of the, the priestly sacrificial system and it would be dipped in the blood of that sacrificial lamb and then actually sprinkled sometimes on objects in the tabernacle or temple and some of it was actually sprinkled on the people. It's, it's kind of a gross thought to us but you have to remember in Israel's Old Testament days this was part of how God had set up the sacrificial system to assure them that there had been sacrifice made and that they were clean. So he's saying, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Then verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. A couple of quick lessons on this, and I know time is hastening on, but I want you to catch this. The word create that David uses is, the, is a word that's used only with God in respect to creating the world and all that's in it. David's actually asking God to do something miraculous, create in me, and then he uses the term clean heart. That is a spiritually clean heart. And some of you say, my heart is so corrupted and defiled, how could it ever be made new? Well, because there's a God who has that ability. And if you would pray to him in the way that David did, he would do it right now, right now. 
So David says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence like a leper. Don't, don't exile me. Don't put me outside of your community. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. This is his prayer. And then you come into the New Testament, and there's a remarkable passage that, from the book of Hebrews that goes back to some of this Old Testament sacrificial system, but carries us far beyond it. And here the writer of Hebrews says, If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons, persons with the ashes of a heifer, that's all Old Testament stuff. That's what would happen to you and me if we went to the temple today and there was a, a Jewish priest there and animals were being slain and all kinds of things were taking place. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, if all of that could sanctify the people who were participating for the purification of the flesh, that is, these bodies, look at verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify? How much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You want to know how you can escape that weight that just hangs over your soul like leprosy? You come to God and say, will you please forgive me? Will you wash me and clean me with this powerful blood of Jesus Christ? Will you purify this corrupted conscience from all of those evil, dead, dark works of my past in order that I could serve you, the living God? And God says, yes, I will. Will you? I will. Don't relegate this compassion and power of Jesus Christ to one leper in the days of Christ almost 2,000 years ago. This same God stands before you today saying, I am willing to clean you. And where sin has worked its terrible testimony over our lives so that we, like the leper, should walk around every day going, unclean, unclean, unclean. The blood of Jesus washes us and we can sing in a place like this or say with confidence in our heart, I am clean. He has touched me and washed me. We're going to sing in just a moment a beautiful hymn. And one of the lines of this hymn, and the title of that hymn is, The Blood of Jesus Speaks for Me. That's actually an allusion to Hebrews 12, 24. But I love the, the lines. We'll come to it in just a moment. My sin is great, but greater still is the boundless grace his heart reveals. A mercy deeper than the sea, the blood of Jesus speaks for me. How does the blood of Jesus speak for you? Well, the contrast is drawn with the blood of Abel. Remember the story of Cain and Abel? Cain kills his brother. God confronts Cain. Cain, where's your brother? Oh, my brother's keeper. And God actually says, the blood of your brother cries from the ground. And when you come to Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That blood crying from the ground spoke of the guilt of a man and his deserving of condemnation and judgment and death, right? That's what the blood of Abel is saying. What does the blood of Jesus speak for those who've been washed and cleaned by it? It cries of your forgiveness. It cries of your cleansing. It cries of your new life in God. It cries forever of eternal life and, and your Dwelling with God. Is he willing? And he says, I am willing. First John 1, and we finish with this. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses, keeps cleansing. That's, the, that's what the Apostle John is writing here in this 
this little letter of his. It keeps cleansing us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That's like the leper saying, skin issue? I have no skin issue. Well, we're all lepers before God. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he, that is God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse, that is, he will absolutely cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is he willing? How many more times does he have to say it? One of these would be enough, but these are not the only passages where God says, I will forgive, I will cleanse, come to me. He says it everywhere. You know, my friend, if you are wrestling with difficult stuff from your past, would you bring it to Jesus? By, we do it by faith. I wish Jesus were in the room today. I'd sit down and let him do all the talking, and you wouldn't want anybody else to talk while Jesus was here. But he still works just as powerfully and just as compassionately. In just a moment, we're going to actually come to the Lord's table which I think fits so beautifully because this table, it's not laden with the kind of food that probably is going to be on most of our tables by the end of the week, right? I mean, you, you couldn't go live out the rest of your day in the physical strength of this food alone, but it's not designed to strengthen you physically. It's actually designed to strengthen you spiritually. And this is just a little foretaste of a great eternal feast that God will spread for all of his people who have come to him for cleansing and forgiveness. Because in the, in the broken body of Jesus Christ, which this bread symbolizes, there's life. And in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, which this cup, in our case of grape juice, testifies, there's cleansing in his blood. And that's where we get life. And that's where God receives us to himself. It's through Jesus. So that's why we call this the Lord's table. He's the one who's saying, come sit at my table. Because if by faith you're willing to believe in the broken body of Jesus, just like you would eat this bread, and if you're willing to believe in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you're my family. And you are welcome to my table. No longer lepers living outside of a holy city. People have been brought near. So this is, this is tremendous. We love this.